2, Seven Heads, Ten Horns, with Klaus Jutter and Travis Stevens. Welcome to Seven Heads, Ten Horns, the internet's only podcast history of the devil. My name is Klaus Yoder, and with me, as always, is my good friend, Travis. Travis, how are you doing on this fair January day? Well, I'm especially excited. It is unsurprisingly a fair January day, also in California. Um, But I'm especially excited to welcome a dear friend and mentor of mine, Dr. Beverly Maine Kingsley, to join us on today's show. Beverly is the John H. Morrison Professor Emerita of the Practice in Latin and Romance Language Studies at Harvard Divinity School. A past president of the International Medieval Sermon Studies Society, Beverly is an affiliate member of the Committee on Medieval Studies and a scholar of medieval homiletics, sermon literature, and manuscript studies, as well as a translator of works by Hildegard of Bingen and Bernard of Clairvaux. Among her numerous publications, I just want to mention Hildegard of Bingen and her Gospel Homilies, which is a crucially important contribution to the field. Beverly, how are you doing? Oh, I'm fine, and I'm, I'm excited to be doing this with you and Klaus. Awesome. That's so great. Uh, well, my excuse for inviting you today is we are exploring the works of the great 12th century theologian, homilist, visionary, musical composer, and Benedictine abbess, that would be Hildegard of Bingen. There aren't really enough superlatives to describe Hildegard's uniqueness in her time. She went on preaching tours. She was consulted by powerful men of the church. She was an extremely prolific author. She wrote about medicine, about she wrote more medieval chant that survives down to us today than any other composer of her time. She wrote religious visions. She wrote sermons. She wrote theological treatises. Really, the list goes on and on. Beverly, I wonder if you want to add any of your favorite sort of Hildegard facts for us here or to tell us an anecdote about how extraordinary her life was. Well, there's lots of material to answer either one of those, but uh, since you just finished moving through the list of things that Hildegard composed, I might add on something that I found very interesting as a textual scholar and um, and, uh, that doesn't get much attention is that she wrote other little pieces and they with maybe just a generic title on them and those are found at the end of the third volume of her Latin writings and just put there and numbered and it's kind of fun to figure out what they are and why they're there For example, there are maybe three, two or three, that are homilies. There's one that goes through the Lord's Prayer in Matthew and explains line by line what it is in Mm -hmm. the style of a homily. And then she has one entitled Visio, Vision, which is um, an anti-heretical dream, and it's... And in these little pieces, she'll put the devil. <laughs> we'll get to that later. Awesome. And um, and and so they're they're a small piece of the whole, but they always fit into the whole somewhere. And so that's exciting. 
And it's exciting that Hildegard interpreted scripture because she does it in recognizable literary genres. Um, I say literary, literary for lack of anything else to describe a genre and to just make sure that you know what I'm talking about. But a special form of writing that she follows. That's something that men did and in the schools and not, not something for women. Women's exegesis, biblical interpretation, when we find it, is usually incorporated into a vision. But Hildegard will incorporate scripture into a vision, but actually comment and interpret while she's doing it. And then she uses the other forms that you mentioned and will talk about later. So Bernard McGinn wrote an article long ago called uh, on Hildegard Visionary and Exegete, where he makes the point that it's not so unusual to find another visionary women, though of course a lot of women don't like it when he says that. <laughs> but um, what is totally remarkable is that she does exegesis, like, you know, in her own way, but similar to what men would do. And um, that's, that's, once I discovered that, I haven't stopped, so. <laughs> and, and anecdotes, we can talk about how she, she did, she was active in, once she was in her monastery in Rupertsburg under her direction, they took in people into their infirmary, uh, say men who were wounded would come and be treated there. So it really did work like a, a hospital. Um, of course, not like a modern hospital, but they treated people who needed it, including men. And um, so when she writes about her healing methods, so those are things that she may have tried on her nuns or on just regular people in her neighborhood who came there because they needed help. And I think that's fascinating. And another little piece is that she founded um, another monastery in Ibingen 15 years after she founded Rupertsburg. Uh, in 1150, so 1165, she founded Ibingen, and it was across the river. And so she had someone who would take her across in a boat, and people would come up to her. There's a story in her, among her miracles of someone who comes up and wants her to heal her daughter by blessing some of the river water and applying it. So, but, but Beverly, only male priests were allowed to bless water. Oh, How could this have happened? <laughs> well, the person really didn't care as she wanted the holy, the holiness of Hildegard was what attracted her. Attracted wow. her. Mm -hmm. And um, I, if you've seen pictures of the monastery that's above the river and are just pictures of the Rhine River there on TV commercials. And just imagine that backdrop and 
<laughs> the people are washing. There she is. <laughs> She's going across the river today. And they run with their, at the shallowest point, to see her, to touch her, to have her touch their children. I don't know how often that happened, but um, it, it's really quite something to imagine. Um, that's that's an amazing story, and that, that countryside is so beautiful by the Rhine. So it's so dramatic with the the cliffs and the mountaintops and the castles and stuff. So I can see how there's like sort of a romantic aura to the whole thing. Beverly, I was wondering if you could talk about how you got interested in Hildegard, how you encountered her, like what got you hooked on someone who lives, you know, like a thousand years ago. Like how did you how did you make that connection across time and space? I see. Well. I was already back at least a thousand years. I also, when I studied Christian Latin in graduate school, I was really taken with it. It was something I didn't know about before. And um, at some point when I was looking around, uh, some colleagues represent, um, recommended sermons to me, Latin sermons. Now that probably sounds like most boring thing on earth but I thought that they were fascinating because I could study them as literature as cultural history as even sometimes political history though that doesn't interest me so much but um and also historical theology all sorts of things are woven into sermons and people who study them, we call ourselves sermonists sometimes, um, can be interested in any one or more of those areas or come from those fields. So it's very interdisciplinary. And, and mm. so I dug into sermons and didn't come out for <laughs> about a decade. Um, I, did, I worked on Cistercian monks, that is Bernard of Clairvaux and his, some of his predecessors and lots of his followers. And he, I loved his Latin, it's quite beautiful, and he worked very hard at it. And, and uh, I liked the meditative aspect of it. But after about a decade of all men's sermons, I kept wondering, Jeez, what did the abbesses do? Aren't there any women preaching in some way, not not going out to the corner and carrying on, or if they are, they get in trouble, but um, doing something within a religious house. And I found out that there were, but not many people had worked with them. And then I found out that um, Hildegard had actually written a collection of homilies, uh, 56, I think, or 58. Um, and they were, they had not been studied. And so there I had a woman writing sermons, or homilies, strictly speaking, comment, that comment on scripture, delivering them to our nuns. So we have a woman and a female audience. And wow, it was off to the races. Oh, and the other thing that happened is um, I started teaching part-time at Harvard Divinity School in 1987. And um, 
there used to be a, a wonderful, well, we have two, two iterations of a bookstore in the school's buildings. The first one was a little homier, and I could see into its window from my office window and see people coming and going and run outside and say, hey, so-and-so. And, um, and then the uh, manager of the bookstore was just a wonderful person who had everyone's interests in mind. And uh, so she knew I was a medievalist. And um, one day she said to me, Beverly, <laughs> have you read The Cosmic Christ? And I rather sheepishly said, no. <laughs> and she, you have to read it. You have to read it. So that was Matthew Fox's first book in 1988. Matthew Fox is the one who made Hildegard known in the English-speaking world because he was in strong disagreement with the Roman Catholic Church and wanted to do a few things. One was adapt a, uh, a more lenient, open attitude towards sin. He did not like the notion of original sin from Augustine, and he wanted to substitute something called original blessedness. So that was, that was a place where he really differed with the Roman church. And then on other things, like not allowing women to do anything priest-like and not valuing their writings and on and on and on. So um, Hildegard was perfect for him. So I read him and I looked at the illustrations from Shebius that he reproduced. And I can't say that anything really bit me. <laughs> I just thought, wow, this is really different. And um, eventually when I started, oh, and then I found out that Hildegard wrote homilies and uh, I was in touch with Barbara Newman, who had just published Sister of Wisdom in 1989. So those were two years in a row with big contributions to Hildegard's studies. And Barbara told me that um, the homilies were, had not been studied and that she wasn't planning to do them. Um, and so I thought, well, I'm going to do it. So I put my name on the list to do a critical edition and let everybody know that I was studying Hildegard. And from there, and then I just started reading the homilies. <laughs> and I have to laugh. I remember think of one of my students, eventually, who was a classics doctorate. And um, she said, but Beverly, I... I can understand her Latin and translate her Latin perfectly well, but I have no idea what she's talking about. <laughs> and I, I was just beginning to get an idea of what she was talking about. And I, one of the things that I resonated with, we might say, is her imagery because I always liked imagery in 19th century French poetry. I, symbolism, I was, I loved that. And so I found that, oh, Hilda 
Kierkegaard is constructing her own theology and way of thinking and vision and describing her visions using a consistent set of images over time and then introducing new ones as she goes. And uh, so I, I found that as the way that I could really connect to her writings and understand them, that and the aspect of her having a feminine audience and being a woman doing her own thing. So I think we were talking about jumping into the devil and getting to our friend, uh, old Nick. <laughs> um, I think Beverly, we're just like looking for maybe a, a, an overview of how the devil appears in Hildegard's works, why he is important and what things stand out to you about his role in her, her intellectual project. Well, um, yes, there's, the devil appears in a wide variety of imagery and in the, de the devil himself as a character. So it might be easiest to start with. And he's also part of Hildegard's, everything is part of Hildegard's overarching vision that connects all of us to the cosmos so your individual soul my individual soul travis's individual soul everybody is <laughs> yeah, right. travis is travis in particular is right <laughs> and um <laughs> and uh that all connects to the cosmos i mean we're all part of this big thing and um and salvation history runs from the first human, Adam, who, of course, transgressed the command. And his, his Adam's soul and Adam's story, and all the way to the second coming of Christ in a new world. So it's that she works through that in. A, in very short works and in very long works. Her three visionary treatises put together have that as the major theme of salvation here, history and the microcosm to macrocosm. So if we look at the microcosm, which is the easiest, we have a devil as a, a yucky, hairy, dirty worm, <laughs> mischievous, in lots of illustrations. He's getting, he's rolling in the ditch and people want to stomp on him. Well, that's really how, that's an image first for uh, conquering the devil is to stomp on him. So you imagine him back in the dirt. So we can't talk about the devil without talking about the whole picture when we talk about Hildegard. But if we go to the um, her play, she composed the first morality play, which is called the Ordo. Virtutum Ordo means the order of or procession of. So it's usually translated as the play of the virtues. And uh, the main character there is the faithful soul, who's a poor woman who 
enters the scene looking sort of lost and the and then the devil appears in human form i don't know how they dressed him the, the classic devil appears and uh starts taunting the faithful soul and then what ensues is a dialogue between say humility and arrogance or what um various other vices will taunt the soul with the help of the devil and then the virtues will respond and it goes back and forth like that so this kind of battle that happens from the inner person all the way into the cosmos when we get to the end of the world so um that's a very human devil and what's very interesting in there is that the whole play is sung however the devil has no singing voice Hildegard is very clear about that. And the devil is a man and all the other actors are women. But what I find so interesting is that the devil himself is not able to sing. This is very interesting to me. The, the devil not being able to sing is very interesting to me because we just did Thomas Mann's Dr. Faustus for, you know, where the devil is actually quite musical. And so it's interesting to see that the devil is... A is, is not musical at all in Hildegard's imagination. Music is harmony, and that means being in harmony with God and in communion with God and with the saints and so on. And uh, music is a God-given gift. And uh, so the devil, by definition, cannot partake in music. He's incapable of singing. So the virtues will sing at him <laughs> sort of forcefully, and he has to answer in a, a gruff, deep voice, I'm sure. And um, eventually the virtues just sing over him, and he falls t to their attacks, and they bind him up to render him totally powerless so that is a very interesting and very strong image of um the devil all tied up and not able to do anything beverly since we are on the subject of music and hildegard and the devil i wonder if we could talk a little bit about her correspondence with the prelates at mainz um Right, because there she she elaborates a little more on this really interesting idea to me as well. Um, I grew up with, you know, uh, ideas like music can be used in um, in holy ways, but that it, it has this lurking, oh. um, there's this suspicion of music yes, in, yes. you know, contemporary Western culture as, as uh -huh. um, having a propensity to evil. So I was thinking back to that letter or that set of letters, really the couple of letters that she wrote um, where there was a, a person who passed away and who had at one point been um, excommunicated, but who she decided to have buried on hallowed ground because he had been restored to the church's good graces and was back in, in the fold. But um, while the the bishop was away, the other prelates, the archbishop, I believe, was away, the other prelates um, 
thought that she had misstepped and that she didn't have the authority to do this, of course. And so um, she gets in trouble. She's under, she and her community are under an interdict, which means not only can they not receive um, the Eucharist, but they also are not allowed to sing the, the divine office, which is what they're doing all day as Benedictine nuns, among other, th I mean, Hildegard was doing a lot of other things too, <laughs> but um, a main part of the time that they spent was, was um, in singing their praises to God. So it's a huge loss for the community, and she writes this really eloquent defense of sacred music um, and connects it to ideas of um, not only holiness, but sacramental holiness. In this, this set of letters, she also talks about how um, a lack of music is evil um, and relates it to Adam. You were talking about the, the, microcos the microcosm, the mi microcosmos, and Adam loses his perfect voice, which he has before the fall, and he's able to sing in ways that she, I believe she writes something like that human beings now couldn't stand to listen to. It's that beautiful. It was that beautiful in paradise when Adam was able to sing. And I wonder if you could talk or um, if you have thoughts about the, relating that back to the Ordo of Virtutum where we have a devil who doesn't have the ability to sing, thinking together with her notion of sacramentality um, and of what the fall means. Yes, well, she does, um, as you say so well, she places it all in that much broader everything belongs together for Hildegard somehow into that broad context and that letter is just uh, a masterpiece of theology and and writing and imagery and it's just an amazing letter I uh, sent the English version to a friend of mine who's a choir director and um, she loves it, and she <laughs> used it uh, in part when she was having a dispute with the rector of her parish who was trying to cut back on the music program. <laughs> but since music is represents this harmony and salvation, to cut it off, Hildegard tells the bishops is to take away the nun's path to salvation. And um, then she, I'm trying to remember maybe, well, she has a, a twist that um, is, is really what we'd call a dig. <laughs> when she says, uh, well, she says um, that she was, I think, implanted with the, the seed the potential for music at her birth. And it was her role to, to sing, to spread that, to spread the message of salvation. And he was sort of thwarting her divine gift when he did that. And that and showing that he had none so basically i think she's telling him he's acting like the devil but i do yeah. also remember that she does compare the taking away of music as a diabolical yeah. act mm -hmm. because it um it robs her of this i i am taken by this uh the notion of her pathway to salvation and the and that of the you know because she's doing care of the souls for the nuns there right so. and and she does that with music so the, the bishop or archbishop is really 
If he takes that away, he's sort of sending himself to hell. I wonder if we could move now to uh, the context of Catharism and her notion of the devil in relation to Catharism, particularly in, in regards to material creation. Um, and then Klaus will follow up with some specific questions around that uh, section of the, f the prologue to the Gospel of John, without him, nothing was made. He's got some specific uh, examples from some of the work that you and Dr. Jenny Bledsoe did together. But start with, a, tell us a, just a little bit about the Cathars and material creation. Why was material creation and their teachings about it different from that of Orthodox Christians? Okay. Well, uh, the simple answer is that the Cathars were dualistic, and they considered themselves dualistic or dual, dualist Christians. Now, other people who are their enemies now and way in the past um, did not accept that they were Christian. Basically, they said that they were excessively uh, dualist and that that couldn't be Christian. And the next piece we'll get to is that Christ was not physically flesh and blood. That's because flesh and blood is bad, so material things. But... Um, that's the big difference. They were also, they come out of a movement in the East. So there is a movement that precedes them called the Bogomils from the Balkans. And then there are others in uh, Greece that are written about by uh, polemicists in Greek and long treatises like the ones we have in Latin. And in order to respond to the idea of evil in the world, which is always... A huge question now is then these dualistic Christians blamed it all on Satan, basically. They said Satan created the material world, so what do you expect? <laughs> if the evil principle, another name for Satan, created all matter, including human beings and everything on Earth and Earth itself, then it would have to have evil in it. So that's that's the simplest way to say it, I think. And um, Satan, of course, is uh, he is seen as sort of the equivalent of God, or and sometimes it's called the the evil God versus the good God, and so, and of course Christianity has lots of dualism in it already, and I'm sure you know that from lots of uh, southern. Um, the devil in the south is different from the devil in well, not necessarily the devil in New England was pretty bad. But yep. um, there's, but it's still not the same as the Catholic Bogomil view of Satan being the creator of all matter. So this is what one of the things that really gets Hildegard, because Hildegard celebrates creation as the work of God, 
and um, some people think we have to wait for St. Francis for that, but we can find that in Hildegard. And uh, so if I look out my window and see little squirrels running around planting things, they're digging in the dirt to put something that's going to grow in the spring with the strength of what Hildegard calls veriditas or veridity, greenness. And she sees that the, the Holy Spirit is the ultimate, well, God, but it's God, Holy Spirit, is the ultimate source of greenness and the force of renewal and restoration and repentance and lots of R words and of growth in material crea creation that um, she has in one of her homilies the, all the little little creatures and plants and go to sleep and you can't see them and then they appear out of nothing just like creation she uses that analogy and it's really quite catching i i got really taken up in it during the uh the pandemic going when i went outside so that's she just didn't uh yeah she couldn't accept that and then their way of life where they lived they lived in male and female communities that were ascetic and celibate and she didn't believe that could happen and she thought they were deceiving women and everybody else i was gonna i have this question about um her engagement with the Gospel of John, but I was wondering if when you when you mentioned the veriditas, the green the greenness force, is that Christocentric? Is that is that sort of green force like something that we need to think about in the Trinity in a Trinitarian terms, or is it like like in terms of Christ, or like how does how does that force how do we think that force should be like sort of scanned theologically? Well, it would be Trinitarian for sure, and it's all three working at the same time all three persons of the Trinity. I mean, the Holy Spirit is the activating force. So it, um, but Hildegard sees Christ as co-creator with God. And there is, uh, there are other 12th century theologians who do that. I don't think anyone as dramatically as she does because she expresses that in her songs and in poetry and in her visionary works and in her homilies and um, yeah, everywhere. So. Mm. And the idea that from John uh, chapter one, verse three, that Without him, nothing was made. Like, why, in terms of the Cathar context, yeah, that's why right. is that mm -hmm. an important like, yes. scriptural theological concept for her apologetic or polemical work against what they're doing? To give a little context before you jump in, Beverly, yeah, so this, this is um, in one of her homilies um, where she talks, she gives two different interpretations, possible readings for how we might understand nothing. So you've written extensively about her exegetical method, but uh, in short, it's she gives piece by piece. It's not always the same, but often she will give short 
pieces of the text, even single words, and say, this obviously means this, or clearly, <laughs> um, this means this. So this scriptural word, in this case, nothing, stands for, and she gives two different readings. One In, in one, she says that it's contradiction, um, invented by Satan in the fall, that, that nothing was made Oh, that means that contradiction, saying something against God, perhaps, was invented in the rebellion of Satan when he claims to be God, saying something different from that. Um, and then the second is a little bit more mysterious. And I was wondering if you wanted to weigh in a little bit more on that. She says, nothing was made without the sun, right, following the gospel text. Um, but she doesn't, she said, it's nothing means nothing. Um, <laughs> but leaving us to wonder, it it's, has something to do with evil, a privative notion of evil in an Augustinian sense. But perhaps you and Dr. Bledsoe write um, sin and idols might be one way of thinking that um, through. Um, but I wonder if you could get us back to the main idea. So we've, we've drawn down to this particular sermon, this main idea of, okay, well, um, what how do we think about these interpretations of this particular scriptural passage in the context of um, this Cathar worldview in which material creation is evil? What do you think about that? Well, let's see. Yeah, it's, <laughs> I'm trying to figure out at what point to get into it, but this homily is a commentary on John 1, the first 10 verses or so. Mm -hmm. And, uh, this is another thing that's a big deal, shall we say, for a woman to do, to try to interpret the beginning of John as something that only men and a few men tried to do. It's like the beginning of Genesis. So she, she um, with the book of divine works, she's at the point where she's progressed through so much exegesis that she's going to, and she has visions that, 1163, 1167, that direct her to explain the two beginnings in the beginning, thinking that they're focused on the word. So um, from John, without him, nothing, nothing was made, but we can try to emphasize it in our English speech. There's not much other way to do it. That one and it, the uh, when she distinguishes two readings, she is deliberately following Augustine and putting his language into simpler language for her nuns. So she it shows her familiarity with Augustine's explanation, and that's a that's a little treasure to have when we wonder about her learning and how she. Uh, just, I mean, she just didn't press a button and know what to do it. <laughs> she obviously was echoing Augustine and the nothing that you mentioned with evil sin and idols, that is the bad stuff. And um, that is something that Augustine says. So she takes that directly from him. And it means evil, things that are evil, nothing, the sun had no part in the making of evil. I think mm. if we word it that way, it makes more yes. sense. That, that helps a whole lot. And then that, yeah. And then, um, so if you reword it, 
And then the contradiction, as, as you said, to speak, we have contra against and diction speech. So speaking against, um, and which is associated with Satan who denied God and, and tumbled out of the heavens. You can also think of it in her monastic world where they follow the rule of Benedict. It's disobedience. And um, I would, <laughs> would sometimes just uh, use that as an alternative for what she's talking about, because that's what Satan did that resulted in his fall. And then the uh, fall of Adam and then everybody else's sins are disobedience to God. So we can say contradiction, yeah. parentheses, disobedience. That's super helpful. I think it's easy in an English speaking context to collapse that into internal contradictions and philosophical arguments, right? Whereas what she's talking about is speaking contrary to claiming um, against the claim of God to be God. I am I am the Lord of the universe kind of language. Well, Satan tries to say the same and say, nope, it's me. And that's thus the, as you put it, tumble out of the heavens. I love that. Do we need to get the cathars in there? I mean, the cathars clearly are against um, God in her view because if we look at the words again, nothing was created that is intrinsically evil. There we're not taking uh, nihil, nothing as the as we are in number two or number one, uh, but differently in that um, God did not create anything that is totally evil. And that's another, I, and the Cathars, of course, say that it wasn't even God, it was Satan and everything is evil, it's matter. But in this place in the, in the development of the thought, Augustine will say, even the nasty fly is <laughs> not intrinsically evil. Um, and some, some other theologian that follows Augustine chooses a worm. <laughs> and I think we kind of, I don't know if Hildegard, yeah, her, her Satan rolling around in the, Ditch is um, not small enough to be a worm, so it isn't, I think, echoing it. But everything, everybody thinks of the worm is coming out of the dirt, and and they don't think of all the good that the worm does. But uh, it's the fly for Augustine that he goes on and on about, and uh, that what the fly, if the fly has some good in it, it's not just evil. So every little piece, if you look out your window, every little piece was made by God. But a good cath, it does. But a good cathar would say with the same, uh, w would a good cathar try and turn this around and say, without him, as in apart from the word, as in um, the, the bad God, <laughs> 
created nothing that is evil. Created nothing, um, which created, is an, yeah, an evil something. Things. Exactly. <laughs> right. right. They'd have to really right. work to, to make that work. Well, um, I want to now turn to a bit of a theological puzzle with you, which is a tension that we might see in Orthodox theology revealed in this um, in this dialogue, if you will, between Cathars and their practices and what Hildegard is defending. So Hildegard makes a spirited defense of material creation, um, thinking in, in full-on Trinitarian terms, connecting uh, the material world to the divine. It's amazing. Um, and I wonder if that reveals a certain weakness. So why is it, would you say, that Orthodox Christians in Hildegard's time and place uh, um, put so much weight on sin as embodied and incarnate? Um, I'm thinking, um, indeed, Hildegard's own conception of sin can tend in this in this direction, though I think it's easy you will find a way to defend her pretty easily. But um, thinking about, she gives a, a long um, defense after talking about the devil in, in one of the, the Shivyas visions, she goes on to then really talk about what a proper marriage should look like in, in very embodied terms. So how do we hold those things together in Orthodox theology um, that material creation is good, but bodies often are bad? <laughs> Yeah, or seem well, to tend in that direction. Yeah, um, well, that's that's a problem with Orthodox Christianity, I think. <laughs> and uh, no, it's it's so it's not Hildegard's problem, but um, the other guys and uh, we call them that. That and that, I, I think we just you know would have to go back to Peter Brown's books about um, early Christian thought and the body and see how that develops and uh it's certainly it's there and hildegard's view is is uh more healthy and uh i think that's that's one of the things that why matthew fox is attracted to hildegard and his trying to break away from the heavy negative role of sin in uh, roman catholicism because he wants to see people as being originally blessed. I, I don't know if I can, I can't totally agree with him. I mean, we have to have some explanation for evil in the world, but it's pretty hard to come up with. But um, it's, it is, I think, I mean, I can sort of go halfway with Matthew Fox, and, and I certainly see what he's talking about. And, um, the uh, late, in, late antiquity and into the Middle Ages and through the Middle Ages and the body is, is just seen as a, a place or a thing that people sin with. Really, I mean, that's of course an oversimplification, but that's, um, as I say, it's a problem with uh, with that type of Christianity that places weight on sin, as you say, and doesn't try to see the good mm -hmm. in people. Mm -hmm. I think it's like a question of like, does she, cause she uh, valorizes or like wants to uh, defend 
embodied physical creation in, in her theology. And yet she also has the kind of the moralizing like yeah. bodies where sin happens thing. And it's like, you know, again, we're saying this is the tension. Um, like, do we think that she, that her presentation like is able to make that more into a productive tension than mm-hmm. an, an outright mm-hmm. contradiction to go back to the, yeah. the devilish yeah, No, I think so. I would say that it does, as you put it. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to play a game. Let's play a game. Um, the game goes like this. Why is Hildegard the coolest medieval thinker, exegete, musical artist, et cetera, et cetera, of, of her time and all time? Um, and your possible answers are, number one, because of the way she interprets her own visions in, in Shivyas, um, or, your, or your possible answer is number two, how she interprets the Gospels in her Gospel expositions. Um, and I'm going to make the case first for the Shivyas approach, and Beverly is going to fight me over this and tell me that absolutely not. Um, it is certainly the way she writes these expositions. So um, here's my rationale. Shivyas, um, know the ways in English, we think, that's <laughs> what this means, um, is a book where she, uh, like, some other medieval woman. I wouldn't say it's super common. I'm going to fight Bernie McGinn on this one. I'm going to say that there are a number of examples of women visionaries, and uh, but that they aren't, um, it's not like you can spit and hit six of them, right? They're a relatively rare. We, we have gathered them as scholars of the 20th and 21st centuries for the reasons that we have, but they had to be sought out. Um, they were a relatively rare occurrence. So that is, it makes her special, but not unique, I guess I would say. Yeah, um, yeah, that's it. She was at the beginning written about as if she were unique. Uh, and so what Bernie would say about her goes back into the 80s. Oh, yeah. I see. Got it. Yeah, okay, so cool. Yeah, that, that context. Mm-hmm. Right, a lot of scholarship happened in the 80s and 90s to um, widen our view of, of women in the Middle Ages writing about uh, theology. So um, what I think is radical about Shivyas is that it's not that she um, has a vision, because we do see that with other women writers. What is remarkable to me is the way she interprets them. So she'll take the text, uh, and they are... In the case of Shivyas, there are um, artworks, and then there also is um, kind of a visual recounting of a vision that she had. And they more or less line up. They're pretty close. You can often use those, um, those visual, the visual art as a guide um, and vice versa. They, they more or less um, harmonize, is what I would say, with one another. But what she does with the text is remarkable to me because she treats it as if it's worthy of exegesis because she exegetes her own visions. And that is weird, that is unusual um, the, in the way that she does it because we have these other examples of how she exegetes, and this is really unique, how she exegetes her gospel, the gospels themselves. Um, and the way she says, I mean, even the language she uses, vidi liket, right? <laughs> um, clearly, right, uh, this means this. She has this characteristic uh, style in Latin. Um, so to me, there's something really radical about taking your own text and elevating its status um, using the, the genre of 
exegesis to talk about your own visions to me seems radical. All right, fight against me. Here we go. <laughs> Beverly, take it away. Well, I, I think that's an excellent point. And it points out something about the structure of Shivius that shows that she's on her way to doing more commentary. And it's actually Bernie McGinn who had his graduate students count up the lines of commentary in all the visionary <laughs> works. And uh, we placed them in a footnote of one of these early articles that are foundational to studying the homilies, really. But um, it, the percentage increases as you move towards the Book of Divine Works. It is to treat your own text as that important. Yes, it's something pretty new and radical for for anybody to do, I guess, I'd say. Um, and, um, and it flows into what's um, important about the homilies that we have this evolution in her commentary on her vision and her visions and then in her commentary on the visions and the um her homilies which are a commentary on scripture but also her own commentary part of her vision she writes a, a narrative that comes from her visions that in, in some of them are her, her thought in any case, that's running in parallel to the scriptural text. And she's writing those in parallel to writing her visionary texts. Does that make sense? So when she's, she, uh, we don't know, we can date a couple of them, but uh, generally, no, you can't. You can't say, "Oh, she wrote this in eleven sixty-five or whatever." Um, you can with with some of her letters, visionary letters and epistolary sermons and so on, but not so much with not with the homilies. I think I came up with a way to date a couple of them, but um, they're more timeless. And so I think she's she is moving towards timelessness and moving towards all time, encompassing all time into what she writes. And so Shivius is the first stage of that. By the time she gets the book of divine works, she is writing about all time. And uh, so there is that evolution and um but she's still being very bold. Uh, well, she gets bolder over time. That's the other thing. She's more certain of her own interpretations. So Shivius is very cool because it's the first time she's doing all of this in writing. And uh, But it does keep evolving over time and uh, in her other work. So... The homilies are the only example we have of a woman commenting on scripture in the form of a homily. You know, that the visionaries do it 
woven in with their visions. And she does that too, to some extent. But she also follows the standard forms that men were using. She was listening. The homily is the form that she listened to every night in the divine office coming from the church fathers. And so she, I'm sure, just assimilated that from the practice of listening to it constantly. That's the way they comment. And then she does the shorter pieces, the solutions on uh, one thorny piece of scripture. And that's something that was done in the schools. And it's her, I believe it's Guibert of Jean Ballou who asks her, yeah, who asks her to do that, please with her to explain these passages and he is a schoolmaster. So he's asking her to use a male form of commentary. And at the same time, he's giving her the permission to because he's a superior to her as a, a monk in charge of her monastery. I was going to ask about this too, actually, for because like you say she's the only example we have of uh, a female author doing the homilies. Like... And you just described how she got permission from a superior to do the commentaries. Is are we imagining that it was almost the force of her charisma and a personal authority that made her the exception to this rule, or how can we make sense of the fact that she was unique in this role? I think that yes, it is that that um, she just moves into that space, and when she first was Shivius. She makes her first attempts, and she goes through the hierarchy there. She does get permission from her abbot to keep writing. That's a, a permission or a, a tacit permission. That is, it's not, I, um, John Doe Abbot, grant you, Hildegard, permission to write these things. It's he doesn't stop her from doing it, and he praises the power of the Holy Spirit in her. And that continues up to Bernard of Clairvaux doesn't give her any permission either. But Bernard of Clairvaux, right, when he does the same thing, he says, who am I to deny that the gifts of the Spirit are speaking in you? So he acknowledged the Spirit's voice in Hildegard and does not object to her um, disseminating her writings. And then the Pope does the same thing, basically. They don't. The, the idea of giving permission is something that happens later, not a whole lot later, but in response to lay groups that were viewed as heretical. Basically, they, uh, popes gave, uh, if it's an honorius before Innocent III, um, Innocent III sort of tapped people, lay people, as preachers and gave them a certain authority. And the reason that he did that is he wanted them to preach against heresy because they all agreed that That's important. So, evil. yeah, more fighters and an ideological war almost you know that's part yeah of, that's part of the context of how she's able to do this that's interesting yeah well yeah i think so um because she did step into that piece of it 
more and more as time went on. And her, uh, Elizabeth of Chernow, who was not too far away from her, though not that close, um, brother Eckbert was, uh, had a high, high respect in the church and participated in debates against Cathars. And um, Elizabeth wrote things at his request and he preached them. It's quite clear the sort of chain of command there. She doesn't do anything that's preaching herself. Hildegard, or that she would describe as a Hildegard, on the other hand, in that situation where she's uh, giving words to the preacher to put in his mouth, says in a letter to uh, Mainz, again, I think it is, um, to she, she says this text, this letter, this whatever, is for is to be preached, say, from the mountains, from the, it's not a mountain, but a, the tower or whatever, against the heretics. So go out and do it. And she makes it really clear that she's telling them to preach and giving them something that they preach from their positions. I think that's, that's good. Is it 170 or 70? That's a Mainz letter. And uh, it's right when heresy was, um, the fight against heresy was raging. Getting back to the idea of the microcosmos in the, hu in the human being, um, there are a couple places um, that you point out, Beverly, in your article with Jenny, um, where there's a kind of echo of, um, of moral evil that we might situate in the will or something that that affects the body in certain ways. Um, so I've got a couple of examples with that. And I, just for fun, related them to some images that I found from Shivyas. One of them is really great. There's like, the devil is pouring some, you know, pollution into cheesemakers' baskets. So the, the cheese, we have uh, an image that's often used uh, with all the eyes on it, but What's flowing down is obviously divine, and the the uh, woman with a baby in her womb is the baby's receiving a soul. Then the devil is up there, as you say, trying to spoil the cheese, and um, it's almost <laughs> Could like be. It's putting a poison <laughs> mushroom in it. <laughs> it. It doesn't really look like that. It's a wild. You know, the devil is um is right here spoiling the cheese and we've got a little bit of commentary on that from her she says i know um you know there are different there are people on the earth carrying vessels right with milk in them and they're making cheese mm -hmm. and one part mm -hmm. is thick and the strong cheeses mm -hmm. are made from that okay we got the good cheese over here mm -hmm. and that's basically um you know it's all about um right. it's translated here as semen but i would probably translate it as seed human seed because as you know seed. in ancient genealogy yeah. men and women both had reproductive right. seed that's just yeah. how they talked about it and understood it so um we've got the good seed that turns into energetic brilliant spiritual people you know etc um, and the devil finds no place in that. But then we've got one part is thin 
and from it weak cheeses are curdled. For this seed, you know, imperfectly matured and tempered in a weak season produces weak people who are, for the most part, foolish, languid, and useless in their works in the sight of God in the world, not actively seeking God. But So that they're the sort of lukewarm, I guess is what I would say in theological terms, that gets spit out. But also, one yeah, part, right. mm-hmm. um, I'm guessing this is milk we're talking about, or cheese, is mixed with corruption. And from it, bitter, bitter cheeses are formed. And those are um, misshapen people who op- often have bitterness, adversity, and oppression of heart, and are thus unable to raise their minds to higher things. Now, here's where it gets interesting to me, because I worried in this section that she was um, uh, either only talking on a spiritual level, or perhaps there was um, a conflation of misshapen people um, thinking about physical bodies, which was worrisome to me for obvious reasons. But she goes on to say, many of these, these people made of the bitter cheese, the bitter cheese people, uh, nonetheless become useful. Though they suffer many tempests and troubles in their hearts and in their actions, they come out victors for if they were left in peace and quiet they would become languid and useless and therefore god forces them and leads them to the path of salvation it's like for her um first of all in my reading now i'm I'm more convinced that she's talking about the spiritual kind of makeup of a person which still feels like it has shades of determinism until she goes and says actually even these people have this possibility of salvation um so I was, my initial concern was somewhat alleviated later when I read her interpretation of it. Um, are you similarly comforted by her interpretation of this image and her thinking around this example of what I'm calling um, a biological propensity to evil or, <laughs> yeah? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's, yeah. Okay. The um, other question honestly. I had about, there's, there's one more example of this idea I wanted to try out on you and see what you thought because you referred to it in your article with Jenny Bledsoe. Um, Here it is. All right. It's from the Liber Divinorum Operum, or the Book of Divine Works. So she writes, thus the soul dominates the body. Uh, It turns out, um, I didn't realize that that verb can be deponent because when I was reading the Latin, I thought it went the other way around. Oh, but anyway, yeah. Uh, thus, the I soul see. dominates the body when the human, still placed in doubt, ponders what he wishes to do or not to do. That is bound and tied in the body without delay, like a captive. When the human commits evil from the taste of sin, as if coagulated through the heat of the blood. He does things with his body, although unwillingly, that are contrary to his nature. And I wanted you to really hone in on this and help me understand this passage as it relates to the human propensity for doing evil. What do you think this means? Oh, original sin. Ah, yes. Okay. Makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, And I'm just wondering, the coagulating, does that go back to our, so this is um from a different book cheese. right um but i wonder uh, yes the idea i know exactly the, the blood is right there the coagulation you're exactly right that's why i wanted to put these things together as i thought about cheese and blood and yeah uh, reproduction uh-huh. um i was just trying to sort through how human bodies relate to evil but my real theological question that i wanted to wrestle with you about actually had to do with this um this last piece um, of how does 
Hildegard understand the body, original sin, coagulation, cheese making, goodness and badness, and our propensity to make free choices, I guess. I, I wanted to make sure I had it sorted out. Does Hildegard in this passage successfully defend against a bodily determinism when we think about the choice of sin? Yeah, I think because she always talks about the choice, you know, over and over again in her writings. When a person hesitates about what he does want to do or not to do or choose to do this or that, that. and um, but when he decides yes. to do an evil deed, that's just and what goes on is his blood starts to boil. Maybe he's going to do something in anger. Then the soul is going with the body, goes along with it, even though it's against its nature. That's the part that's so interesting here, isn't it? Because she starts, the soul is ruling over the body, which sounds like maybe that's where we would locate that conscious choice. But then through this physical process um, of the appetite, um, the, you know, being activated, there's a heat in the blood. Through that physical process, we're then able to do things that, as Paul would say, you know, doing things that he would rather not do, right? Um, that's how we get from... Uh, the choice or the um, the decision to do something bad that then um, has effects on the body and in the end feels as if we have no choice anymore. A kind of point of no return maybe is what we're looking at if I think temporally. Is that is that right? Well, I wouldn't say it's no return because there's always a possibility of repentance for, but it, it's no return as far as committing a sinful act. Yeah, but it's not it's not final and it's not determinism. Perfect. Okay. Which makes sense with her larger themes in Veriditas, et cetera, that there's such a, a huge space carved out for redemption, repentance, et cetera. All the R words. Good. <laughs> Great. Super. Okay. Well, that was the thorny theological problem I wanted to throw at you. Thank you so much. Well, with that, thanks for listening. See you next time. This pod is made possible by support from the Satanic Horde, Asmodeus, Mammon, Leviathan, Beelzebub, and listeners like you. Thank you. Oh.